Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. <clears throat> Welcome, everybody. Uh, today is October 30th, 2015. This is our pre-Halloween show. And uh, I, I guess in, in honor of Halloween and zombies and stuff, you could consider that pertinent to our topic. Uh, today we are <laughs> going to be talking about meat in the media. Um, but first, uh, joining me in our studio from all across the planet, uh, we have Erica, Tiffany, Doug, and Gabby. Hello. Hello, Hello all. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. We are also going to have a special guest host on today that we are working on uh, getting connected with. So until he's able to he's join us, we'll kind of... He's coming, Yeah. All right. Ah, there he is. Hey. Elliot, can you hear us? Hey, Elliot. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Ah, uh, hey. Hi, how are you doing? You're live. All right. You're live. <laughs> we are we are live. So we have Elliot now too, which is awesome. Um so let's uh let's move into the um some of the connecting the dots for today. We're gonna begin our show with some items from the news. Uh and first um Gabby had something to share with us about the HPV vaccine. Gabby, do you wanna tell us about that? Yes, I want to talk about this subject because it is an article published in a scientific journal, and it's all in Spanish, which is a pity, so I'm going to do some a little bit of translation. It is written by a sociologist from the University of Texas and um, a medical doctor specialized in internal medicine from Georgetown University. And the article is titled, The Impact of Researchers' Loyal to Big Pharma on the Ethics and Quality of Clinical Trials in Latin America. So the cases covered in this article come from Argentina, Costa Rica, and Peru, and it regards um, and considers specifically the HPV vaccine, which comes from Costa Rica. So much of what we know about the HPV vaccine comes from there. So it basically reveals how Big Pharma conducted clinical trials in Latin America and how the quality of the data was very poor how human rights of the subject were violated, and how there was little compliance with basic ethical principles approved in international declarations. The article reveals a corruption which is much greater than people imagine, with health ministers set by the industry only to approve permissive laws for big pharma, and doctors who cheated the poor and uneducated patients in a very impoverished healthcare system. Um, deaths were hidden under the carpet, and basically a text which describes, you know, a horror and violence that most people still think is so far away from the institution of medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, to summarize, the clinical trials conducted in South America, they have a very high risk of fraud and biases that contribute to overestimation in effectiveness and safety. And uh, the example that comes from Argentina uh, regards the vaccination for, for streptococcus pneumonia, which is called Prevenar. 
and uh, they recru recruited 14,000 babies um, in 10 years. The industry paid $24 million for these babies, so to speak, and after several deaths, 14 babies died, more or less. The clinical trial had to be placed, uh, had to come to an end. An investigation mm. revealed that research protocols were violated, and even though the main researcher was suspended, he was quickly reinstituted uh, not, not too long afterwards. In Costa Rica, since 1986, um, three executors of clinical trials served as health ministers. One, which I met, unfortunately, is the mm. head chief of infectology of the National Children's Hospital. So this is a pediatrician specialized in infectology. She was a health minister. And during her period of time, protocols that were favorable to, uh, favorable to the industry um, were passed and they were not even authorized by the whole Costa Rican government. And uh, this is important because the HPV vaccine, which is the papillomavirus vaccine, um, was conducted, was pioneered in Costa Rica. And it was pioneered by GlaxoSmithKline, which has the brand name Severix, as opposed to Merck's Gardasil. But still, much of what is known about the HPV vaccine comes from Costa Rica. The research was conducted in one of the poorest regions of Costa Rica, which is Santa Cruz of Guanacaste. And just to have an idea, you know, Costa Rica in the year 2000 had a population of 4 million people. And the density of clinical trials per population is one of the highest in the whole world. So Big Pharma has chosen this specific country for its um, guinea pig research. And um, investigation has revealed that the HPV vaccine trial was full of conflict of interest and basic, basic ethical violations. Not even an internal government audit could access the consent, the written consent for, for the HPV vaccine. And which began in 2004. During that audit, it was revealed that up to up to the year 2000, so from the 80s until the year 2000, the industry invested 45 million dollars, and an additional 20 million dollars were invested since the since the other trial in 2004 began. Uh, it was revealed also that the um, written consents were not understood by the patients and it was phrased uh, in terms of public interest, but it was really meant to favor only the industry. Um, from an interview for, of just one of the participants of the trial, it was revealed that the patient had serious side effects after the vaccination, but the doctor you know, rationalized it as like, it's all in your head. The patient was not convinced, and two months later, after she experienced pain in her breast, which she never experienced before, she withdrew from the trial without giving any explanation. Other patients revealed that, you know, the, they were told the vaccines didn't have any consequences because they already vaccinated thousands of girls. So there was basically no informed consent for them. They were just basically recruited. And even though the FDA rarely inspects the trials abroad, like the ones conducted in Costa Rica, it still approves vaccinations and medications tried in many South American countries. And as we see, these trials have characteristics of not reporting adverse effects, 
and even, you know, debt. And um, so basically, this is where the HPV vaccine comes from. If you are surprised why it is in the market with so many reported adverse effects, and why didn't anyone report it, you know, in the pioneering research, any adverse effects? So now you know why, pretty much. This is the summary. Well, so what do you geez. guys think? <laughs> I, I had a question, well, Gabby. Did you say they were yes. doing it on infants or young children? That's right. Yes. Um, there were young girls recruited. There were several clinical trials conducted in South America, and these articles specifically picked just three cases, which is the HPV vaccine, the vaccine for um, uh, streptococcus pneumonia, which is the um, bug of of uh, lung infection, and they used babies for this one, 14,000 babies. Oh. Um, some babies died, and nothing really, not really, not, no research was really done. You know, even the, the main researcher was just temporarily suspended, you know. And for mm. the HPV vaccine specifically, yes, they used young girls, and uh, in, in it is literally the poorest region of Costa Rica where people are so naive and they will like, oh, yes, whatever the doctor says. And uh, <laughs> if they have side effects, they will, oh, no, they, you know, they will not report it. Or even if reported, they will just be disregarded. This was basically all with the green light of health ministers, um, main researchers that were paid by big pharma. And... Um, basically having an effect of corrupting science and a very impoverished healthcare system, you know, and then Mm. they take this research and they just export it to the rest of the world. Yeah. And we're seeing the consequences in the rest of the world, too. Like the HPV vaccine is hugely controversial right now with all these different side effects coming out. There have been deaths reported, all kinds of things. So, I mean, this doesn't really come as surprising, but it's really disgusting. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, and they do the same thing in other, uh, say, lesser developed countries, um, like India and uh, several other countries in Africa where they go in and they do these drug trials and people can't really offer con- informed consent because they mm-hmm. really just don't know what's going on. They think they're going to get free health care. Really, they're mm-hmm. just, you know, guinea pigs. And if they have any bad consequences, it's on them. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty disgusted. Yeah. Yeah. A few years yeah. ago, they started giving it to young boys in in the United States as well. You know, because uh, for our listeners who may not know, at least the HPV vaccine in the U.S. is for genital warts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, they're giving these vaccines to children before they're even sexually active. Yeah. Which is unbelievable. And most most cases of HPV clear up on their own in a couple of years anyway. Yeah. Well, let's uh let's see, let's go through the rest of our uh topics here for connecting the dots. Um Erica, you had one uh here talking about uh bad fats and their connection to autoimmune flare ups. That sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, so I, I, I found this article uh, this 
last week. Um, it came from Science Daily on the 20th of October. And the title of the article is Autoimmune Disease Flare-Ups May Be Triggered by Certain Unhealthy Dietary Fats. Um, 50 million Americans suffer from autoimmune disease, and nearly all of them could be worsening their condition with the wrong diet. The introduction to the article. At Frederick Alexander University and Ruhr University, German researchers compared how different dietary fats affect mice with autoimmune diseases. Uh, this research was published in the journal Immunity, and it could help shape dietary recommendations for those suffering from diseases like Crohn's, multiple sclerosis, and type 1 diabetes. For those who may not know, autoimmune disease emerge when the immune system attacks healthy cells, and uh, the exact causes are still unclear. Researchers are now beginning to learn that dietary fats could influence how these symptoms present themselves. The author goes on to talk about two types of dietary fats and each play a different role, such as building nerve cells, producing energy, and forming cell membranes. Mm -hmm. We talked about long-chain fatty acids, and um, so these are solid at room temperature, uh, most abundant uh, component of the Western diet. And then the author kind of lumped in um, so the fats were beef, pork, lamb, and then they lumped in cheese, butter, and whole milk. So I found the article a little bit general, you know, that um, mm. they would say that these, uh, you know, cheese and whole milk would stay solid at room temperature. And then they talked about short-chain fatty acids, um, and those are rich in fiber, uh, they only metabolize by the gut bacteria. Uh, Omega-3 fatty acids um, were found mostly in flax seeds, walnuts, soybeans, and leafy greens. So, again, the author kind of, like, lumped in these two different things and wasn't really clear about the difference between healthy dietary fats, you know, like uh, tallow, pork fat, and even butter. And then, um, you know, went on to say that the short-chain fatty acids were good. So, you know, this whole idea, which we'll get into the show today, about, you know, you got to eat more of those vegetable-based foods and not the meat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, in, in a comment, mm -hmm. you know, I, I made sure to point out that the author wasn't clear and linked some to some other great articles on SOT that we'll probably get into today, but... Uh, just one was the great traditional animal fats, which gives a breakdown of, of beef, tallow, and pork, and butter. And then another good article was don't throw out that fat, put it to good use. Mm -hmm. And then um, a, a good article about how animal fats are better than vegetable fats. So yeah. just to kind of round up on that article, it said... Um, when treating autoimmune disease, most approved immunotherapies weaken or block in, uh, the pro-inflammatory components of the immune system. So by strengthening regulatory pathways, therapies could be further optimized. And really what the author left out and what we hope to cover in our show today is the importance of diet and how mm -hmm. diet can obviously really have uh, an effect on the immune system and autoimmune disease. And there was an article um, 
that was linked there that uh, talks about how auto autoimmune disease can uh, be treated with a paleo diet. So I thought that went that article went along really good with our who topic today about yes. <laughs> meat in the media. Yeah. yeah, totally. That's something that we'll uh, we'll get into more over the course of the show. The idea that you know that this this new WHO study and and the implications of that and what some of the uh, things I think that are being overlooked uh, in the results of that study. Um, but we have one more uh, connecting the dots here. Doug, do you want to tell us about? Uh, it's kind of explicit whoring for Mickey D's. <laughs> yeah, whoring. Uh, There's an, <laughs> <laughs> an article we posted on SOD in the health and wellness section, uh, originally from CBS News on Friday, October 16th, and it's called "Whoring for McDonald's." Teachers, teacher lectures that big backs and hot fudge sundays have a place in a weight loss diet. Like even, even the titles. <laughs> ridiculous but um so basically the article goes into uh so yeah it basically goes into um there's this uh this science teacher named john cisna um from iowa and he was in the news uh i don't know how long ago it was i guess it was maybe last year or the year before because he had gone um you know on this diet of all fast food uh, all mcdonald's if i'm not mistaken um, to kind of counter what uh, Morgan Spurlock had said in his documentary, Super Size Me, where he had eaten nothing but McDonald's and got really sick and gained all this weight and um, started showing signs of prediabetes and all this kind of stuff. And he was basically arguing that um, any fast food and junk food can be part of a weight loss diet because, big surprise, it's all about calories. So as long as you're counting your calories and making sure that you're not going over a certain number of calories – it doesn't matter what you eat. And his position is that there's no such thing as bad food. Now, this is just ridiculous from a perspective. Anybody who's a regular listener to our show or a regular reader of the SOT health and wellness section knows that the whole calorie thing is just a myth. You know, the idea that you can just restrict your calories and it doesn't matter what you're eating. Um, you know, you can eat nothing but chocolate cake as long as you don't go over um, a certain amount of calories and you'll lose weight. Well, of course, this is, it is just completely a myth. You know, but they spread this idea, this calorie um, model, um, because it, it makes these junk foods seem completely innocuous. You know, the only thing wrong with a Big Mac and a hot fudge sundae is that they're high in calories. So as long as you offset that and, you know, maybe only eat one Big Mac meal a day, then you're fine. But it's, it's ridiculous because it doesn't look into the actual composition of food. You know, what's in there? What's causing uh, any kind of problems? Are there enough vitamins and minerals in there? Um, you know, all, all these kinds of things are just kind of completely glossed over as the focus is just completely put onto um, calories. So now this guy, Sista, is kind of going, like, touring uh, the U.S. to different schools and lecturing high school students about this. And, and maybe in public Yeah. No, he's, he's going around and giving this thing. Not only that, but he is sponsored by McDonald's. McDonald's is actually trained to go around to all these different schools and tell kids, hey, kids, it doesn't matter what you eat as long as you watch how many calories. It's how much you eat. You know, it, it's just <laughs> disgusting. And the guy, and it's, it's really funny, too, because it says in the end here, he says something that, um, uh, hold on a second. Oh, yeah, he said he can't fathom why people believe that it's problematic 
for him to be receiving money from McDonald's. He's like, I couldn't go around to all these schools and give these lectures if I wasn't sponsored by McDonald's because it would cost me too much money. I mean, like, come on. Give me a break. Like, are, are, are public schools uh, a place for corporations to be kind of um, giving their perspective on things? And basically, it's really nothing but a seminar of why you should eat McDonald's. And he says he doesn't focus yes, on McDonald's. They are, thing, yes, but I mean, come they on. Are. Oh my god! It's the title pouring for McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How is this even allowed? You know, should be. Well, and teenagers are the biggest consumers of junk food already, so it's like a sold audience. Like he really has to convince them to to eat more junk food. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Even if he did get them all <laughs> calorie counting. I mean, the, all the the weight, like you know, he he basically did his his own diet of of Big Macs and hot fudge sundays, and uh, he did he lost weight on it by keeping his uh, calories low, but of course there hasn't been any kind of analysis of what of like how healthy he is or or what um, mm-hmm. and you know what what his uh, his you know overall composition is, you know it doesn't it doesn't even look at you know how much fat did he actually lose, you know how much of what he lost was actually like muscle. Um, you know, lean mm-hmm. muscle, um, because in a calorie-restricted diet, most of what is lost is water and lean muscle mass, not fat, because the, the body goes into a conservation mode where it's like, I better hold on to all my fat because obviously, you know, I'm in the middle of a food scarce situ- scarcity situation. So it, it, it the whole thing just makes me sick. <laughs> well, yeah, you need McDonald's well. on free university, and then we have complete movie of idiocracy. <laughs> Yeah, well, we're getting closer and closer. Yeah, yeah, and and I recommend the documentary Super Size Me because it is disturbing. This the how they at the it, there's some out clips in there where they leave a McDonald's hamburger out for like weeks at a time and nothing yeah. even happens to it. It, it doesn't just, degrade at all. It doesn't mold. <laughs> I mean, Bugs is it don't even really it. meat? <laughs> <laughs> And the funny thing is that he says that Morgan Spurlock, the reason, the only reason that he had the effect he did is because he ate too much, because he was always, if he was ever asked to supersize anything, he would do it. So, yeah, it, he said, oh, the only reason that he he got sick or gained weight is because he ate too much and he didn't exercise. Like, give me a break. <laughs> well, this is obviously, you know, part of McDonald's uh, – campaign uh, to try to revive their brand image because we know recently that they've been losing popularity, I think, around the entire world. Um, Their market Mm -hmm. share has dropped considerably um, as people realize that the stuff that they sell is not actually food. Um, Of course, you know, they're they're a multi, multi, multi multi-billion dollar corporation, and so they're going to do what they can to protect their interests. They're not just going to fold, you know, and walk away. Um, so it's going to be – I'm sure this is, like, just the first wave of the things, like the death throes of McDonald's. So it's going to be interesting to see what else they, they do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like kind of like Coca-Cola, um, you know, being the largest contributor of the dietary and nutrition organizations and trying to mm-hmm. really – um, shape their drink as a healthy alternative. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, I even see mind what um, the world would be like without McDonald's. Can you imagine going through any major city and not coming across five or six McDonald's on the main road? <laughs> what would the world be like? <laughs> no. 
Yeah. No, I even I, I saw a, a Coca-Cola commercial recently, and they're basically emphasizing that Coca-Cola can be part of a healthy diet as long as calories do not exceed you know X number or something. It's just you know it's such a twist of the truth. It's unbelievable. And meanwhile, yeah, there's a YouTube video going around of this guy cleaning the rust off of his rear bumper with a bottle of Coca-Cola. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It turned out shiny. <laughs> and this comes from people are catching up with the fructose research that we know fructose is very low in calories, but it's still very, very fattening, and it induces mm-hmm. diabetes. And more people are aware of this, so it's crazy that they come up with this propaganda at this point at this point in time. Yeah, it's no yeah, I, I, especially when they're talking about restricting calories. So you know that is uh, on its own merits a valid idea. But if you restrict calories and your restricted calories are McDonald's and Coca-Cola, then the <laughs> only input your body is getting is you know hydrogenated oils, uh, processed wheat. Um, you know, uh, preservative uh, compounds that are highly carcinogenic, and we're going to talk pink more slime. about carcinogens today. But yeah, pink slime. Um, you know, mm. ten ten thousand cows in, in one burger, which I, I think that's more of like a, um, I don't know, that's just kind of a, a psychological thing. But I don't. Uh, I think Nora Gadgadis says something on that, as far as health related. I think it maybe just increases the probability of there being pathogens in the meat, uh, you know, eating the, the pink slime versus eating, you know, like a steak that comes from one cow. Um, mm-hmm. I, I have to, I have to plead ignorance on, on the specifics of that particular thing. Um, but I mean, and I don't think that it's, it's a far stretch to say that we understand uh, that McDonald's and most, if not all of other fast food is not good for you. It's not nutritious. Um, mm-hmm. It's not, it's not going to help your body. Uh, grow or become strong or last uh, for any extended period of time. It's basically just a filler, uh, and I think it's probably one of the many contributing factors to this modern disease epidemic where we see diabetes, cancer, things mm-hmm. like that, uh, increasing at a rapid pace. Um, has to do with and the not explosion only that, of uh, younger, not only that, but younger people with sports injuries like that, you know, or back pains that usually, you know, come up later in life, like in their 50s, 60s. Now you see teenagers mm-hmm. or people in their early 20s having all kinds of problems that shouldn't be mm-hmm. there. That's just bad quality of yeah. eating from a very crappy diet. Yeah. 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 Well, let's get, a, <clears throat> let's get into our topic for the day then. Um, so meat... Uh, in the media, so just kind of reading from our um, our show description here. Oh, actually, shoot! Now I just lost it. Well, <laughs> yeah. you ever accidentally close a window? I hate when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we are going to be talking about meat in the media. We have a number of things to go over. Um, we'll be talking about fish, talking about vegetarianism. Um, organ meats. Um, we addressed the uh, the nitrate myth in a previous show, but we'll just kind of touch on that, uh, grass-fed versus non-grass-fed, um, and a bunch of other things. So, But first, let's just uh, – I-, I wanted to pose uh, to the co-hosts 
just kind of a general question to kick off the discussion. Uh, why do you think that this is becoming, that this is spreading so rapidly? You know, especially with social media, there are some things that trend and some things that don't. And, um, I mean, honestly, I can't remember. Uh, it's been quite a while since so many people paid attention to a World Health Organization study, um, you know, because a lot of, well, lot of this things isn't really kind of fade into the background. This isn't entirely Sorry. new. Like in 2012, I think the WHO or one of their branches came out with another article about uh, how meat was bad and it caused cancer, and there was like a whole slew of articles that came out of that. So it seems like maybe every few years now they're going to come up with this whole meat is going to kill you thing to scare us away from eating meat. Maybe it's because of the uh, popularity of the paleo diet and the ketogenic Mm -hmm. diets that are, you know, getting traction on social media. So maybe they feel they need to come out and, you know, just let people know, no, no, that's bad. Meat's going to kill you. And it's going to affect people negatively. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also yeah. the fact. I think the reason it's gaining so much traction, I think, is is partially because of the the fact that uh, that meat eating isn't really politically correct right now, to use that term. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Sally Fallon wrote about this in uh, in her book Nourishing Traditions, and this was years ago. She was talking about how there's kind of this politically correct diet. And it's kind of like leaning towards vegetarianism as much as possible, avoiding red meat, you know, the whole meatless Mondays thing that's that's trending right now where people are like, no, you should try and be, you know, even if you don't uh, eliminate animal products from your diet, you should try and limit them because they're not good for you, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, nobody really likes the idea of, of harming animals, and we've seen all the terrible abuses of animals that happen in the factory farm situations. So I think that there's kind of like a reaction to that. Like people have in the back of their mind that there's all that, that, you know, eating meat is actually cruel. It's a, it's a terrible thing to be doing. And you know, that we, you know, what's propagated is that we can survive fine without meat and you can actually thrive on this vegetarian or vegan diet. So I think that these kinds of articles and, you know, the media is complicit in this too, because every time there's any kind of article that uh, scientific article, well, scientific in quotes, of course, article that, uh, mm-hmm. that comes out that shows the harm of uh, of meat eating or red meat eating it you know there's headlines all across every you know media outlet that you can imagine talking about how red meat is going to kill you or any meat is going to kill you processed meat is going to kill you all these different things and it gains this traction because it kind of reinforces that whole idea that's spreading right now that oh well yeah meat is cruel and not only that it's bad for you so it, it just i think you know people are are kind of like primed for this and that's i think that's one of the reasons it gets so much traction I think it is interesting that it was massively covered in all media all around the world, radio, television, social networks, everywhere. You know, that is interesting. And it's also mm-hmm. interesting, for example, I remember specifically for WHO, the World Health Organization, a few years ago, the sugar industry threatened to remove their multi-million dollar uh, finances towards who is they if who placed a limit to sugar. So oh, basically yeah. yeah, so basically who who, who decided to not do it because I know there has been several regulations lately, but at least that time specifically they were going to place a limit on sugar and they decided against it because they were threatened, literally. And this is covered in the documentary The Man Who Made Us Fat 
which is a BBC mm. documentary by Jack Peretti. And I think it could be in the industry could may well have a big role in this, you know, massive coverage of a, you know, pointless, you know, insignificant study that which was made in Lyon, France, you know, otherwise. It's just like yeah, I think that. Yes, I think that's really likely. Um, I mean, with with all of the information coming out now, I mean, you've got a lot more people um, who are who are in the paleo movement who are talking about evolutionary nutrition, who are mm-hmm. um, you know talk, talking about nutritional ketosis. Um, it seems to be you've got it's, it's it's almost like you've got two schools of thought within the media, and um, you've got you've got um, quite a few articles coming about coming out how fat is um, is beneficial. You know how they've been wrong all along. Um, talking about ketosis, talking about um, you know this 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 way of, of living essentially, and um, and then you you've got the other side who are um, yeah who who are basically trying to demonise red meat, demonise saturated fat. Um, and and it's almost like it's almost like this uh, this up and coming movement is trying to be be crushed, you know. And I, I would imagine that that is from the industry, you know. Like uh, you've got all of these, uh, you know, agriculture, you know, uh, big pharma, um, you know, the sugar industry. I mean, that that really doesn't surprise me uh, about about um, what you said, Gabby, when. Um, how they threaten to cut cut the funding to the who? I mean, yeah. that's just that's just insane. Yeah. Well, it's also yeah. interesting how the who came out, you know, recently against the whole glyphosate and Roundup and Monsanto, you know, mm-hmm. um, about how it's a probable carcinogen, you know, and you see. It, you see study after study after study about it, and it is used in animal production as well, feeding of uh, GMOs to animals. But you don't see the same kind of, as you guys were saying, that that media coverage of it. It mm-hmm. seems to be suppressed. Like you, you can read mm-hmm. about it in small alternative news sites, people in particular who cover the GMO issue, but you don't it so widespread you know and and again they use that probable carcinogen word and it doesn't get the same media play exactly yeah that's true yeah and i think you have to look at the world health organization as an organization and what it is they actually do i mean they're a branch of the un and um interestingly zoe harcomb uh wrote uh, a blog about this um the the who uh study and what they've uh what they've uh, kind of released to the public and she does a really good analysis actually i encourage anybody to 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 look that up and she kind of points out all the different flaws in it but she gives a link kind of at the end um talking about the world health organization um and it it actually says world health organization taking cash handouts from coca-cola to plug to plug black holes in budget and then the article goes in it's just a daily mail mm-hmm. article and it talks about how it's received the, the uh, World Health Organization, one of the branches, the Pan American office, um, has received, received 35,000 pounds in donations from Coca-Cola, 100,000 pounds from Nestle, uh, and a similar amount from Unilever. So these are all processed food corporations. Um, so really, like, despite the fact that they're trying to, to put up this, uh, this front of being completely um, you know, neutral, 
uh, you know, where are they getting their money from? You know, so it's it's really uh, you know very revealing when you look at it that way because um, any any um, finding that they put out, you have to weigh it against you know whose interest is actually being uh, forwarded here. Whose interest? <laughs> Who's well, interest? Be better, you know, is the meat industry not big enough to give the World Health Organization handouts? Are they not giving them enough question. money? So that's why they come up with this <laughs> this study, the so-called study, I should be. say. That's a good question. I mean, if I ask, yeah. Oh, I had a similar question. Right. Like, just, I'm I'm not not necessarily a, a fan of uh, business, so it is a an interwoven part, you know, of our, our modern society. Um, but the beef and the pork industries are two of the largest industries, at least in the United States. And um, these guys have got to be fuming right now. So I'm just curious, like, yeah, what, what happened behind the scenes there? I think you, you, mm-hmm. you might've um, got onto a, a possibility where maybe they, they pitched somebody off and they said, well, we're going to make you pay, you know? And, and then, so they create this, uh, this trending kind of news item uh, based on a, a study that was done, and the study itself is is ridiculous. We'll we'll go into that a little bit later. But um, yeah. well, it's it's repeated, that's, that's right? Like it's, inter- it's over. So I was just going to say, like it, it isn't it isn't a one time thing. Like the meat industry, uh, you know, meat is con- like constantly thrown under the bus. It seems like every year we get a new scientific article talking about how dangerous it is. So yeah, it's it's. I wonder if it's like you know. Um, like smoking, they've just kind of picked this one industry that oh, we need to blame all this on something. So um, here we go. This is this is the you guys are getting thrown under the bus. Sorry about that. Elliot, go ahead. Yeah, um, I was going to say it's um, yeah, it's interesting what you're saying, Jonathan. Um, I've always wondered about this because um, you know you've got all of this anti-meat propaganda all of the time. And then you look at the size of, you know, these 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 uh, these, these meat meat corporations, and um, I'm sure Leah Keith talks about it in um, in her book The Vegetarian Myth, and she spoke about how how it um, it was actually really beneficial for the um, the agriculture the agricultural um, industry the grain companies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because uh, I can't quote this, but I think it has something to do with how um, how too much grain is produced and how um, how essentially it's a way for them to get rid of the grain very easily by feeding it to the animals. She was essentially saying that, um, that there's no way that the, um, that the factory farming would be possible unless you had... Um, the the amount of this grain being produced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, and that's something that we have talked about a little bit before too. Is that well, we are uh, you know all of us here on the show are proponents of uh, of eating meat. Um, now, the the moral question versus the health question, I think, is kind of a whole different ball of wax. Um, that's something where, personally, if if somebody tells me that they don't eat meat because they can't stand the idea of an animal being, being killed for them. I mean, you can get into a conversation about that, but it's much, you know, it's, it's hard to argue a, a moral choice. I'm like, okay, that's, that's a choice that you want to make. So, you know, like I'm not going to be crap for that. Um, I, I feel like I could argue against it, but you know, I'm not going to like turn into a, a raving lunatic about it. 
Um, <laughs> on the other hand, when when you talk about uh, when you talk about health issues and you say meat is bad for you, that's something that can be objectively, scientifically argued against. Um, but what I was originally saying, we we have talked here before about the the factory farms that are going on and um, the uh, the cruelty that exists there towards these animals that they're keeping. There are actually humane ways, though it may sound counterintuitive, there is a humane way to raise an animal for harvest uh, and then to slaughter the animal and process them and to do it humanely so that they feel they have like a good life and that they feel as little pain as possible um, when when they're killed. Um, and then to make sure that there's a restriction of pathogens and a really like dirty environment for those animals as they're living. These factory farms are not doing that, um, especially pork and poultry farms are really, really bad. Um, and mm. <clears throat> when you see like the treatment of the animals that are kept there, it is quite bad. And I don't think that it's counterintuitive to be a meat eater and to hold an empathy for animals and how they're treated as they're raised. Um, so I, I just wanted to bring that up, you know, because it's not like when we're talking about this WHO study and saying that we think that it's ridiculous um, and that it definitely needs to be talked about and kind of brought into the light of day, um, we're not saying, you know, at least I, I, I'm not saying personally that factory farms should, uh, should get off the hook and should continue to operate the way that they are. Um, you know, if meat production was kept on a smaller scale where you see like Joel Salatin from Polyface Farms, Farms and what he's doing with the way he processes his meat, I think that should be done on a much more widespread scale throughout the world. Uh, and we would have healthier meat and we would actually then receive the health benefits of that meat that we're getting. Yeah. No, that's something that uh, Zoe Harcom points out in her, uh, her article that you know, there's a very big difference between somebody who is a health-conscious individual and is eating meat because they recognize that it is something healthy and something good for them, and they're searching out good sources, they're uh, finding, they're only eating the grass-fed stuff, and you know, it, it's a completely different picture for somebody who, um, you know, in the back of their mind thinks that eating meat is bad but doesn't care. You know, is like I, they're not somebody who is health conscious and they're eating meat because it tastes good. They're getting your average grocery store meat. And, uh, you know, they're also doing all kinds of other things that aren't good for their health. They aren't exercising. They're eating junk food and all these other kinds of things. So it's, it's like they, they, that is something that's not reflected in what the, the WHO uh, or any study um, on red meat consumption is putting out. You know, they don't, I have never seen a study that compares the health of somebody who is eating meat in a paleo type uh, of diet versus somebody who is eating meat in uh, a standard American diet um, type setting. So it's really, uh, you know, th th those kinds of things aren't reflected here. So um, you really need to kind of, uh, you know, tease out what's really being said here. Yeah, that's a, like the article that we started with was connecting the dots, you know, the autoimmune disease issues and, and fats and lumping them all together and skewing the real issue. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And Speaking just what it, Jonathan was saying about, uh, you know, factory farms, um, we've carried quite a few articles on SOT about factory farms are what is known as CAFOs or confined animal feeding operations. And, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, the vegetarians focus on cramped spaces and inhumane treatment. 
There was a great article um, on SOT called Torturing uh, Animals with Monsanto's Genetically Engineered Feed. And so Mm -hmm. some scientists, farmers, and veterinarians are are talking about other forms of abuse on these farms that, again, don't get any attention. And that's stuffing animals with feed grown from genetically engineered crops, you know, drenched in glyphosate. And um, they went on to say that the, the symptoms veterinarians and researchers have observed in animals are unlike many of the chronic and increasingly prevalent health problems or are like. Um, that are plaguing humans, you know, digestive disorders, damaged organs, infertility, weak immune systems, Mm. chronic depression. So there's, again, it's like teasing out the information and not getting caught in the hype, the overall, you know, meat is bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's something that we had talked about, um, you know, when we were kind of prepping for this show, too, is what Doug had mentioned there, um, you know, when they say that there's this potential link between cancer and, and meats, um, I think more specifically red meat, but I do believe that they kind of included all meats as a potential connection there. Um, that, you know, <clears throat> I'd really love to see the actual details of this study and are they taking into account people's uh, environmental factors? You know, or do they live in a polluted area? Um, the rest yeah. of their diets, yeah. uh, what kind of exercise they're getting? Because, yeah, if you did, I mean, I can practically guarantee that if you put somebody in an isolated situation and fed them a paleo diet with proper exercise, sunlight, uh, lack of EMF pollution, and all of these things, you'd be an extremely healthy individual. And yes. so these, kind of, these kinds of studies are not being done. No, yeah. And this study didn't control for environmental factors, you know, uh, as you said, you know, so they probably ate a lot of crappy food. They were exposed to a lot of different factors, and meat was just uh, associated here, you know, as a causative factor when it was only a, an association factor, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that, as you said, if they would have eaten only meat, you know, and they could have healed a lot of issues they would have had, actually. Yeah. No, well, they're just really basically going on uh, evidence, uh, in quotes, of research from observational studies. So these weren't double-blind, placebo-controlled studies or anything. And people who participated in these studies, they gave them questionnaires to ask them how much of this or how much of that do you eat within a certain time frame. Like, I had trouble remembering what I ate for dinner last night. I can't think of how many servings of uh, Frankfurters that I had to eat in the last year every week. I mean, you can't rely on that to give you any kind of meaningful data. No, and they've even shown, like, sorry, go ahead, Elliot. I was just going to say, you know, this, this uh, this is a state of mainstream science at the minute. I mean, these these guys, it's like they they either don't know or they just choose uh, not to distinguish the difference between uh, finding correlation between two different things and then determining the cause of a you know a, a study. It's uh, you know it's it's like it's like these guys don't even know how to practice science. I mean, observational <laughs> studies, <laughs> these things they they they're meant to provide a foundation of data. From which you can build a, a theory from, you know, and then study. 
you know, they, they're not meant to um, provide provide us with the cause of something. And yet, in in the media, um, you know, uh, bodies like uh, the World Health Organization are outright outright saying on a on, for instance, um, in social media, you know, they're saying it is the cause of cancer. Or, um, you know, for instance, uh, sufficient evidence in humans shows that the con- consumption of red meat causes colorectal cancer. And that's just a blatant lie, you know? It's just mm-hmm. a complete lie. There's nowhere in yeah. But people, the, the problem is people don't even question that. They don't actually look at the study. Because when you do look at the study, it's laughable. But no one even looks, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. They just read the headline. That's, exactly. yeah, that's it, you know. That's how it is. <laughs> and this yeah. is how this stuff gets spread so much, I guess, because people are they uh, they they don't they don't question it, do they? No, not at I don't all. know. I was going to ask oh, about no. that. What are people's reactions? Because at least from my my area, a lot of people were like, "Yeah, right. Give me a break. Here we go again." <laughs> I don't know. Are you guys seeing any reaction at all, or? <laughs> I was just going to say, I think if you were going to poll people on the street, that that would actually be the majority reaction. I think the minority reaction, honestly, um, would be people who believe it and are actually going to stop eating red meat because of something like this. Um, a lot of people are just going to be like, yeah, okay, you know, and then go have a you know, hamburger or whatever. But that's that's exactly part of the problem. This is not a black and white issue. It's a very complicated issue. Um, when you have a burger with a, a white wheat bun and chase it with some fries and beer or whatever else, you know, you are not, you're, you're not getting the benefits of the, of the meat that you're actually eating there. Um, and that is specifically what's dangerous about the modern American diet. Um, yeah. But Elliot, you were going to say something about your daily experience there. Oh, I was just going to say, um, I I walked into work the other day, and um, and someone asked asked me what I have for lunch, and uh, I think I just had some avocado and maybe some um, ground beef. And uh, yeah, the first thing that um, I was um, the first response I got was, oh, are you going to get cancer? You know, red meat, you know, red meat, red meat causes cancer, you know, and I just, I couldn't help but laugh, you know. I, I wasn't even going to argue the point. I just, I, you know, kind of comes to a point where you can't really get through to, to these people, you know. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, with the, with the, with the studies like this, they, 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 I mean, for instance, uh, red meat. What the, what classes is red meat? Is say if you have some pepperoni on a pizza, or if you have a hot dog in a bun, or say like uh, some tacos or some uh, some pasta with some red meat or something. You know, like uh, <laughs> these these uh, you can't compare that with with a with a well adapted Paleolithic diet, um, which is you know, um, primarily meat-based and high-quality meat at that, you know. These, these studies just mm-hmm. don't get done. And so it's so easy to um, misrepresent the the evidence, to, you know, to come up with false conclusions and, and lead, lead people to believe 
believe things that really just aren't aren't based in reality. And that yeah. really makes me mad because people will recall, okay, they ate pepperoni in a pizza, and when they are handed these questionnaires, what they remember is the pepperoni, but what about the pasta, you know, the gluten and and the rest? Mm-hmm. Hardly That's anybody. Right. It makes me mad. Yeah, though these uh, food uh, frequency questionnaires are notoriously um, giving poor results. Um, I mean, you can even look in the scientific literature on this. They talk about how, you know, people, because people have a preconceived idea of what's healthy, they mm-hmm. automatically will kind of lean more towards um, those those things. Like, you know, it's almost like telling, tell, you know, they kind of subconsciously know what the researcher um, considers good. So they'll they'll kind of uh, you know answer with a bias towards that. And interestingly, uh, there was an Australian uh, study done on food frequency questionnaires, and what they found is that people who were in a disease state actually did the opposite. They would um, actually um, weight their questions more towards the bad side of things, as if they're kind of mm-hmm. like, uh, I know that I'm probably uh, sick because of what I ate. Therefore, um, you know, subconsciously, of course, they're like, well, you know, I, maybe I did have a lot more meat than I thought I did or something like that. So, so it's it like, you know, there's, there's inherent biases in the way people answer these questionnaires. And like Tiff said, you know, when it's asking a question like, how many steaks did you eat in the last year? Like, come on, how accurate are you going to be? Like, honestly, like, I mean, I can't remember how many steaks I ate last week, like, let alone, you know, but what I had over the course of the last year, like, come on. Yeah, and people, I remember people also, for example, having high triglycerides, and we know that high triglycerides comes from eating too much sugar, too much carbohydrates. And people mm. will selectively think, oh, I think, yes, I ate too much fat. No, like, no, you didn't. Like, you ate too much <laughs> sugar. <laughs> exactly. Well, I yeah. can attest to that. I took a nutrition class, like, years and years ago, <laughs> maybe, like, in the uh, late 1990s or something. And I was kind of flirting somewhat with vegetarianism, not eating that much meat. I had this idea in my mind that meat made me constipated. Never mind the fact of all the rice and the pasta and the pizza and all that that I was eating. I thought it was the meat. Yeah. <laughs> never mind that you were vegetarian, basically. Yeah. yeah. And never mind that now that I eat mostly meat and very little carbs, my bowels never work better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But did well, any of you guys get a chance to look at the uh, the Q and A on this study on the Who's website? Yeah, it's a contradiction. Let's go over that a little bit because um, that provides some some really interesting kind of talking points. I'll put the link up in the yeah. chat here. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Um, I have some personal favorites uh, that I go through here, like <laughs> between like almost all of them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I want to say it was set points uh, seven and eight that were uh, directly contradictional or contradictory. Well, yeah. Well, say, let's start uh, with in, question number three. Sure. The reason why they even decided to look at red meat and processed meat. And they came right out and said that it was based on uh, epidemiological studies suggesting that there was a small increase in the risk of several cancers. Um, 
But although these risks are small, they're important for public health because people worldwide eat meat and meat consumption is increasing in low and middle income countries. So I Mm -hmm. think that kind of gives a clue as to what they're hoping to accomplish. People are eating too much meat and they need to stop. (laughs) Food shortages. They were thinking on that. (laughs) Well, again, it comes back to like, what, like who is this organization? Who, you know, is this organization? Who the hell do they think they are? Exactly. Well, I mean, because the thing is, their mandate, like if you look on their website, it says um, WHO is the authority responsible for public health within the United Nations system. Okay, they are the authority responsible for public health. So what's going to be in their best interest is to get people, you know, to be perceived as healthy in all these different Mm -hmm. United Nations countries. Right. So. The, the thing is, when, when people in all these countries are coming down with diseases and such, and such like that, they can actually point to something now that says, oh, it's because they're eating too much meat. You know, the reason that these cancers are happening is because they're, they're eating too, too much meat. And it also, it, it, you know, it serves their interest because when um, there is a country that is, you know, having a problem with feeding their population, you know, they're starving, they're having issues with that, and the WHO is kind of responsible for them to come in and, and provide some kind of nutrition. Well, they don't have to provide meat. Forget it. That'll give them cancer. Mm-hmm. We have to give them soy and corn and rice and all these wheat and all these other kinds of things, you know, because that's, um, you know, serving their mandate because it's like, no, we're providing them with the, with the nutrition that they need. So I think, mm-hmm. I, I think that really they are kind of serving their own self-interest here. Well, they come around and say that it's, important for the IARC, which is the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is, I guess is a branch of the WHO that conducted this study. Um, it's important for them to provide authoritative scientific evidence on the cancer risks associated with eating red meat and processed meat. So they mm-hmm. see themselves as authorities, and it's their job to tell people what to do and what to eat. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and they can I mean, it, it is like, uh, again, kind of like we talked about, they don't take these other things into account. And it makes me think of um, specifically uh, uh, radiation levels, you know, throughout <clears throat> not just the Western world, but throughout the entire world. I mean, even just uh, recent, like, never mind all of the nuclear testing that went on in the, uh, in the 50s, but more recently, Fukushima. Um, I don't know if, if people are aware of the salt mine collapse that happened in Carlsbad in uh, New Mexico. There's plutonium leaking out of a salt mine there um, on a daily basis. Um, there is the, this buried radioactive waste uh, near, I think it was St. Louis. Um, that mm-hmm. is, there's there's an underground fire that's approaching that. Um, and Nevada. And Nevada, yeah. I mean, so radiation is all over the place. And uh, Helen Caldicott, uh, who our listeners might be aware of, has stated that uh, I think either every person or, or like 90% of people in at least in the northern hemisphere have one, have at minimum one molecule of plutonium in their bodies. We all, we all got it, you know. <clears throat> and one gram, <clears throat> I do remember reading that one gram of plutonium is enough to kill one million people. Um, and oh my so, God. You know, it's, it's, yeah, <clears throat> and so the you know the amount, and that's just plutonium. That's not cadmium or any of these other radioactive compounds. 
um, that are leaking out. So the you know the Pacific Ocean is entirely contaminated after Fukushima. Um, the, it's being spread around um, by the rain and the weather systems on the planet. Um, you know it's it's in the ground, it's in the water, it's in the food. Uh, the animals that we eat are contaminated with it. The plants are contaminated with it. And so it's not like, you know, I'm, I know I sound like I'm not trying to be a fear monger, but I'm just saying like, it, yeah, I wonder if the IARC has ever really considered um, radiation or if they've done any studies on that because now, I mean, it, it almost is the case now that cancer is the de facto cause of death. I think pretty soon they're going to be calling cancer natural causes when they say he died of natural causes they're going to include cancer in that realm of things you know because it's happening so so often um i personally know uh you know 10 people um that that i've known personally over the last say 10 to 15 years that have died of cancer and i'm sure everybody has been touched by it in some way mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so it's it's a really really predominant uh, epidemic in our modern society and yeah. uh, lump, lumping meat into the co- into the the causes of these conditions, I think, um, really combined with people's propensity to take the headline from a news article and not look any further into it, really does a disservice um, to everybody's thinking capabilities because it, it's a highly complicated issue and there's a lot of factors that go into why people are getting sick. It's not just meat. It, there may you know. Meat may be a part of it because it's contaminated or it was raised wrong or it was processed wrong or it has carcinogenic compounds in it as preservatives, things like this. But that's not that's not just meat. You know, it's definitely not black and white. So um, it is, it's no, fun to hear people kind of run with it. Like meat is even, like, you know, it's like a grand distraction, right? It's like meat, meat is, one, is the least of the problems, you know, and if it's a problem at all. Like it, it's really uh, serves as a great distraction. It's the same thing in the whole uh, smoking thing. You know, all these these lung cancers are increasing despite the fact that smoking rates are going down. And it's like obviously there's something else you know causing the problem. And I think radiation is probably a, a big factor in that. But it's it's like all distracting from the fact that our modern life is is like antithetical to life. You know that it is um, killing us. And it's, 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 you know, a, a grand distraction to put the blame on all these small things like smoking, like meat eating, like, like all these different things when really there's, there's a much, you know, it's like the big elephant in the room. You know, well, what about this massive problem here? Are we just going to ignore that and, and think that if we cut down on our red meat consumption, we'll be fine? It's just ridiculous. Well, it's obvious that the IARC did not take any confounding factors into consideration when they did this study. So they classified red meat as a group 2A carcinogen, which means probably carcinogenic to humans. And they go on to say that this classification is based on limited evidence from epidemiological studies that show positive association between eating red meat and getting colorectal cancer. And limited evidence means that a positive association has been observed between exposure to the agent and cancer but that other explanations for the observation, uh, like chance, bias, or other confounding factors could not be ruled out. So they admit right there that (laughs) (laughs) their conclusions mean absolutely nothing. Yeah, Yeah, and still the media blew it out of proportion. And why would we not see the same thing with Monsanto research from who? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
No, it's, it's the whole thing about the, the, the fact that it's all observational studies is really telling, too. You know, the fact that, I mean, like Elliot was saying before, you can't take observational data, which only shows a correlation between two things, and, and draw a conclusion from it. And I was reading, I think it was in a Mercola article, where uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was Gary Tobes took a look at um, every time that they've taken observational data and formed a hypothesis and then done another study that was an actual like placebo controlled you know study where they're actually you know determining a cause like a study that can actually determine causes they have never confirmed their hypothesis never mm -hmm. and there's one uh, good example actually with HRT I think it was in like the the 90s they did an observational study that showed um, women that were undergoing hormone replacement therapy were less likely to get cancer. And I can't remember particularly what type of cancer it was. Um, so this led to a whole bunch of women suddenly like signing up for uh, hormone replacement therapy. You know, it's like, oh, wow, this is, this is going to keep me from getting cancer. And what they actually ended up finding is that yeah. cancer rates increased because they were taking HRT. You know, and it's 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 mm -hmm. all the confounding factors. You know, the, the women who were undergoing HRT were probably doing other things to kind of mitigate that uh, possibility of coming down with cancer. They probably had a healthier diet. They were probably exercising. They were probably taking a lot of things to to help them um, that would mitigate a cancer. But of course, all these other women who just signed up for HRT and didn't change anything else, well, guess what? They all ended up getting cancer more so. So it, it just goes to show right there how flawed making a, a, a conclusion from a, a, an observational study can actually be. Mm -hmm. Well, in this Q&A, there's another one that really got my goat. This is question number 12. <laughs> like, How many cases of cancer every year can be attributed to the consumption of processed meat and red meat? So they answer, according to the most recent estimates, uh, by the Global Burden of Disease Project, an independent academic research organization, there's about 34,000 cancer deaths per year worldwide that's attributed to diets high in processed meat. But, they go on to say, eating red meat has not yet been established as a cause of cancer. <laughs> However, <laughs> if if the reported associations were proven to be causal, the Global Burden of Disease Project estimated that diets high in red meat could be responsible for 50,000 cancer deaths per year. I can't believe they actually wrote that. So yeah, I know. they're saying that yeah. if they found that red meat causes cancer, if that is true, which obviously is not, if they found that it causes cancer, then they would say that the the – the consumption of red meat would be responsible for 50,000 cancer deaths per year. Why did they even write that? I don't even understand. <laughs> I mean, how did they even work that out? You know? like, I don't know. They just made but, it like, up, obviously. They just come, come up with a number in their head and think, yeah, this looks good, let's uh, put 50,000. Yeah, I, if I red meat causes cancer, then 50,000 people a year will die from red meat caused cancer. <laughs> <laughs> We should find out if uh, we should say to them, well, if you know broccoli turned out to cause cancer, how many how many deaths would that be responsible for? We'll get an equally meaningful <laughs> number, I'm sure. I wonder if this is uh, like Doug. You were mentioning earlier, you know, who who the who is uh, and what their connections are, and uh, they're certainly not a, a benevolent organization. But I, as we talk about this more, I can't help but think. 
that the burden of um, kind of blame uh, for the uh, the explosion of this in the media is the media itself, and not necessarily the WHO. Because you you know you could also quote this and say, WHO study says eating red meat has not yet been established as a cause of cancer. You know, and that that could be the, that could be the headline. Uh, you know, but instead it's it's been turned into this kind of sensationalist thing. Um, and so, I don't know, it just makes me wonder, like, again, as we had mentioned earlier, what, as questions, uh, you know, what are the, what are the causes of this? Where are they coming from? I mean, is it as simple as this is just another sensationalist thing that can go on, you know, that can fill the front page or fill the blog feed, uh, you know, so to, to generate content, you know, for media organizations, um, or is there some sort of an, another purpose to this? Because when I think from, like, the perspective of, say, you know, uh, lawmakers, like senators and congressmen, I can almost guarantee you that they are not giving up their steaks and whiskey because of the WHO study. You know, and so I'm wondering <laughs> about, like, I'm wondering about the, the ramifications and the, uh, the, the, the motivations um, for spreading something like this around. Um, and if you think of it from, if we like, if I could don my tinfoil hat for a moment and think of it from more of a sinister perspective, that, and we've covered this before on the show, <clears throat> that it's been shown <clears throat> that if you, uh, if you adopt a paleo or uh, even more so a ketogenic diet, uh, that your brain begins to work better. You begin to think more clearly mm-hmm. and more critically. Um, you, you are not uh, clouded um, you know, with the inflammation that happens in your brain from a specifically high-sugar, high-carbohydrate diet. And so, you know, if, the, if again, now I, I just want to be very clear that I'm being totally speculative and totally, like, conspiratorial here, but if the powers that be could get the population as a whole to have, you know, overall more of a, veg, uh, more of a vegetable, carb-based, sugar-based diet, um, they're going to think less effectively, and they're going to be much more easy to control. It's the whole like bread and circuses thing. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, I, I can't help but wonder about that. I think that's a that's a, a good point that you bring up there, Jonathan. Um, I mean, I I think um, I think it's it's really multifaceted. Um, because you could you could look at it from a merely sort of um, from a financial perspective, and you have to question who who benefits from um, you know I guess you have to follow the money you know who who benefits from 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 people eating a, a, a diet high in sugar and high in grains and very low in 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 sort of real nutrient content, and you have to you have to question I mean. <laughs> There are actually, um, I mean, there's a few good articles on it. There's, um, there's one that actually talks about, um, this is talking about the, uh, it's by Mercola, and it's called um, Collusion Between Pharmaceutical Industry and Government Deepens. And now, um, this isn't specifically about nutrition, but they still talk about how, um, how the pharmaceutical companies uh, it talks about Merck, yeah, Merck, the pharmaceutical company. It's talking about how um, how this this pharmaceutical company essentially um, has ties with government officials and policymakers, 
and um, and yeah, I think I've gone off, gone off on a bit of a tangent. Um, what I what I meant to really say was um, I think it benefits uh, benefits these big industries for people to be ill. You know, if 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 if, if you're ill. Then, um, then you're more likely to go go to the uh, to the pharmacy or go to your doctor, and your doctor's going to tell you that uh, he's going to prescribe you with a certain medicine. And you're going to have to take that medicine. So, mm-hmm. on the most basic on the most basic level, I mean, it's fairly simple to understand that you know there are going to be companies, there are going to be people up at up at, up at the top of these industries who 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 uh, who would prefer to people for people to be ill. Um, and that's not not a very nice thing to think about, but um, you know, I I think that's uh, you have to be objective about it. And I think it's the same with um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to say. Like on a deeper level, you could say, yeah, well, you know, perhaps um, perhaps there are there are individuals or there are groups of individuals with agendas that. Um, that that would like to dumb down the population, or would like to uh, to to limit their thinking capacity. But then again, I think you could also look at it um, from the perspective of, you know, if if you've got a bunch of psychopaths, um, maybe they they don't really necessarily care about um, about whether whether people are questioning. Maybe they're just thinking about the money. You know, I mean, it's, it's hard to. Mm. I think it's hard to determine. Yeah, well, that that kind of sinister overlay has happened in a lot of other industries as well. When you consider, you know, education, um, the the at least in the in the American world, the American education system was founded to suppress free thought. That's that's written down. You can read the documents from the the founders. Um, the people who came up with the American school system said that they wanted to quash. Um, independent thinkers and make everybody good workers, you know, and good citizens. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> same with the American Medical oh. Association was was founded to quash uh, resistance and independent thinking among doctors. Um, so mm-hmm. it's it's not that far of a, a reach, you know. I don't know that there's necessarily one group sitting in a boardroom somewhere that kind of plans how the world works. I think it's probably a little bit more chaotic than that. Um, but saying that it never happens is, I think, short-sighted. It's naive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just look at how uh, you know the American Medical Association uh, worked so hard to quash homeopathy. You know, it's like this is interfering with our ability to make money off the chemicals that we are um, trying to feed to the population. So they uh, they worked really hard to uh, to basically oust uh, homeopathy from. Uh, from America, and it, it it worked to a certain extent. There used to be homeopathic hospitals; they don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about the uh, as they're trying to kind of demonize meat with this study, and the media is going along with it. They're also releasing uh, test tube meat. And Erica, you had mentioned that briefly when we were prepping for the show. Do you want to fill us in on that a little bit? Yeah, well, we a few shows ago we carried a few connecting the dots about uh, creating synthetic meat and all the money that was being raised to do that, and then um, this whole idea of cloned meat as well. And I was doing some research before the show, and um, 
was interesting to go back and read articles from 2010, which is when this idea of cloned meat first kind of hit the uh, the mainstream, so to speak. Um, one a good article is uh, U.S. is unsure if cloned meat has been sold in North America, and uh, this was back sure. again in 2010. Um, and Secretary of Agriculture Tom Velsnick, he's actually still the Secretary of Agriculture, uh, said that cloned meat is safe. Um, and this was actually published in the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, the interesting thing about it, and I was talking this morning about it um, before the show, was that cloned meat was actually created by Canadians. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and uh, also um, GMO salmon, which I have a little bit of stuff on. But uh, the first cloned mammal was actually Dolly the sheep, and uh, it was uh, created in 1996. And uh, cloning has become more common and causes less outrage, apparently, uh, than frankenfoods. Like, um, and then there was the Enviro pig that was created yeah. by Canadians. And, um, <laughs> but in in one of the articles, oh, it's there's a uh, talking about Canada's transgenetic enviro pig is stuck in a genetic modification poke, and this was carried by the Globe and Mail in 2010, and um, basically they said Canadian scientists discovered that an E. coli gene um, would produce a digestive enzyme that regular pigs don't have, and they realized that they could introduce this genetic material from the bacterium into the pig to minimize the environmental impact of the pig's waste. Oh. Oh, what so a great idea. we see major pollutants from large-scale production like factory farming, allowing uh, pork producers to cut operation costs and... Um, in 1999, they combined that genetic material from E. coli with a snippet of mouse DNA. And um, basically, the whole article goes on the idea is to feed the world, right? <laughs> but the interesting part is that you couldn't do this in Canada, so they brought it to the U.S. And... Um, there's questions if it's even in the U.S. food supply. You know, uh, another article by Martha Rosenberg, who's written a lot about um, hormones and antibiotics used in factory farm meat. She wrote an article called Clone Meat May Already Have Invaded Our Food Supply, Posing Alarming Health Risks. And she talks about Dolly the sheep here and the Enviro pig and even the Aqua Advantage salmon um, that is, uh, a combination of uh, basically a Chinook salmon gene and, you know, they it makes it bigger and more fatty, but it also has uh, more um, toxins in the tissues. And just all of this crazy, mad science to feed the world. And, I mean, it's frightening, you know, uh, like Jonathan was saying earlier in the show, there's ways to raise animals like Joe Salatin talks about extensively in his articles and his books 
and and these people are spending time and energy making enviro pigs that are safe for the environment, you know, making these frankenfish, a GMO salmon that, um, you know, will grow larger and possibly decimate native salmon. And it's just so insane. I mean, it really is insane. I think they're just using the excuse of wanting to seem like they want to feed the world, and really they just want to do weird Frankenstein and experiment animals and make weird wacky creations and set them loose on the world. I don't think there's any empathy for starving people anywhere at all in that. Yeah. Well, it also yeah. it comes down to money, right? Like it's basically by by having a patented animal um, for food production, basically that means they they kind of are cornering the industry and they get all the money from that because every single time an enviro pig is raised, then the person who holds the patent for that or the corporation that holds the patent for that gets gets paid. So I think it it really comes down to um, a, a means for them to control the entire food production or the entire food chain really so they get paid at every level they get paid by the farmer they get paid by you know the retailer all these different things um it really i think is just it, it's just about money if you follow the money trail mm-hmm. like elliot was saying you, you kind of get a, an overall picture of what's really going on here yeah and maybe that's the reason that this whole who study came out thinking <laughs> along the conspiratorial lines is you know this idea that meat is bad for you, and let's just go with the genetically altered, created in a lab, you know, GMO-fed, synthesized, soil and green meat. (laughs) Yeah. And and there'll be no side effects, right? Because it won't come out. You know, glyphosate is safe. It doesn't cause cancer. You can, you can, you know, I mean, in the U.S., they produce so much corn that they have to feed it to cows, and cows can't live on corn. I mean, I think they die in, like, nine weeks of stomach ulcers and whatnot. But, you know, it's it's like you were saying, um, Elliot, about the whole agriculture-based system. Like, we've just turned into this producing all this excess that – people don't need and don't thrive on and then feeding it to animals. And I think that's what's making people sick. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that's how the whole meat industry came into uh, into existence, really. It was because of all of this excess grain that we couldn't do anything with. We just started feeding animals and then... Um, and then, boom, you know, you've got factory farming and then you've got, you know, decline of health. Um, with the population. Yeah. Yeah. It's all just in favor of kind of, uh, you know, propping up a broken system. You know, the, the, it, the CAFO thing, it's so obviously not sustainable. It's like, it, and, and instead of actually, like, you know, taking a big picture look and saying, you know what, this isn't working, we really need to kind of reassess and, and uh, look at how we can actually, uh, you know, have, find an alternative. They just keep on taking these steps to try and prop it up. Oh, no, you know, th- there's a problem with all the waste uh, that's, uh, that's, you know, polluting the environment. Well, oh, why don't we just uh, come up with a genetic modification to, to correct that problem? Instead of saying, you know what, maybe this whole system is broken and we actually really need to kind of reassess and, and, and establish something new or something old, actually, as the case may be. Yeah, I guess it's not like, like the idea. Go ahead, Elliot. 
Uh, <laughs> I was just going to say, um, I guess a lot of people don't like the idea of having to... Um, well, people don't necessarily like, like the idea of change, you know. If there's any effort that needs to be put in, it just seems like uh, that, that people people would always rather take the easier route. So, you know, um, instead of actually having to, to think about, come up with solutions, you know, creative solutions of, you know, um, of how to deal with the problems that we face. Um, I think I think the case is usually just that people would rather sit back and allow others um, to make the decisions and not actually have to to put any any thought into it, you know. And um, and when when you've got when you've got these kinds of people at, at the top of the you know um, the decision making sort of structures, people with uh, with the general populations. Uh, well, they don't really necessarily have their best interests at heart, do they? So um, when you've got these types of individuals who are making the choices and then you've got the general population who are just, you know, um, sort of accepting that, um, we're in a bit of a rut, you know. Well, these people yeah. at the top, they're not going to do anything that cuts into their profits and they're also not going to exactly. admit that they were wrong all along. I mean, they'd rather you know, come up with a genetically modified pig that doesn't poop and say, uh, well, yeah, you're right. This system really doesn't work. We should go and do it Joel Salatin's way. That'll it never happen. Really, it is yeah. really like putting Dracula in charge of the blood bank. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also, Erica, you said that the pigs fed, you know, corn, they turn like they have stomach ulcers or cows. Oh, cows, yeah, cows, cows in particular. It was it was um, in the documentary Food, Inc., if anyone's interested. It, it shows what happens to a cow when it's fed a, a diet of corn. Mm. That reminds me also another study um, by done by the – what was the journalist's name, which covers bad seeds, GMOs, bad seeds? Anyway, the research was that pigs that were fed corn, they turned cannibalistic and autistic, uh, hmm. antisocial. And that is a lot of food for thought, you know, <laughs> considering hmm. the increasing, you know, rate of violence in the population, you know. Hmm. It's like... If people really wise up to these facts, you know, I think people will be completely horrified and will just like run away from corn fed, you know, whatever. Well, there's, yeah. there's been quite a few um, incidences of cannib- cannibalistic behavior over the past few years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so maybe, uh, you know, maybe that could have something to do with all the GMOs that they're. Uh, you know, you know, food supply now. You know, we'll wait and see. <laughs> or that this, that that you know, uh, the smoked meat has, you know, these articles came out in 2010, and now we're in Whoa. 2015, and we really don't know. I mean, I, I speak for the U.S. in particular here. You really have no idea what is <laughs> is you know being sold because of the whole labeling issue and whatnot. No. Mm-hmm. 
So meat is good, in other words. <laughs> well, actually, maybe we should actually look at that. Like, you know, the, this this uh, WHO study that's come out, um, you know, is basically saying that, that meat is bad. Um, I know that mm-hmm. uh, Nora Gagatis wrote a pretty good piece um, countering that. And uh, mm-hmm. she, she was talking about all the different vitamins and minerals that you find in meat and how actually healthy it is for you. And one of the things she emphasized was um, the amount of CLA, um, which is conjugated linoleic acid, which is actually a trans fat, believe it or not, but it's a naturally occurring mm-hmm. one. And that, um, you know, it came out, it became popular um, a while ago because it was actually found to, to promote weight loss in rat studies. Um, but actually, the more they've studied it, the more they've found that it actually uh, has anti-cancer effects. And it's been found in a number of different cancers to actually decrease the, the rate of cancer. I'm not sure how the, the mechanism of action works on that one. But uh, basically, uh, grass-fed meat is much higher in CLA. Actually, I think in, in CAFO meat, you actually don't get any CLA. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like so, so the idea that, uh, that meat causes cancer in and of itself um, if you're eating grass-fed meat, you're actually getting more of the CLA, and CLA has anti-cancer properties. Not to mention all the B vitamins, especially like B12, folic acid, all these important, important nutrients that uh, that are very difficult to get anywhere other than from meat. Well, there was um, there was a study, um, a French study on uh, CLA, and it was um, it was. Um, studying uh, the instances of breast cancer, and it studied 360 women, and uh, and it found that the women who had the most CLA in their diet were actually 74%. Um, there was a 74% lower risk of contracting breast cancer compared with those who didn't have any CLA in their diet. Wow. Um, there was also another study, and it says um, human breast cancer cells were incubated in milk fat high in CLA or in an isolated form of CLA without any, without any milk fat. Um, the high CLA milk fat decreased the craft. De- sorry, the high CLA CLA milk decreased the, the cancer growth by 90%, but the isolated CLA decreased it only by 60%. So basically, it's saying that when the cells were incubated in omega-6 fat linoleic acid, found uh, found most abundantly in grain and uh, grain-fed animals, cancer growth um, increased by 25%. Yeah. <laughs> basically, um, the omega-6 fat um, essentially increases increases cancer, and the CLA decreases. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a great article on SOT that we uh, encourage our readers to check out. Why is fattier grass-fed meat the best? And just like what you and Doug were talking about, this idea that it's it's the healthier fat. They talk uh, about Weston, the Weston Price Foundation, and we've done a show in the past about um, you know the Nourishing Traditions cookbook and really helpful information in that book. They talk about um, traditional cultures and um, discovering their their traditional diets. They were free from chronic disease that afflict modern people, and um, they had healthy and vigorous lives and lived into old age. And then they used examples of like um, pemmican 
a staple preserved food of Native Americans who lived on the Great Plains in the United States. And pemmican consisted of dried bison meat, uh, dried cherries, and a great deal of bison fat. The Native Americans knew that fat was absolutely necessary for the pemmican to sustain life. And um, most of the nutrients in grass-fed meat are in the fat, not the meat itself. So very uh, lean grass-fed beef has no visible marbling. Um, It will have fewer nutrients than grass-fed meat that is nicely marbled. Um, And there was another thing here. So that idea of saturated fat being good for you and the fat is where the nutrients are. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it also said in uh, most valued traditional foods include fats from pastured animals, lard, beef, tallow, goose fat, duck fat, chicken fat, heavily used for cooking in traditional Europe. Um, Again, in the Native American cultures, they used bear fat, bison fat, and fat Mm. from other game. Lamb fat was prized in the Middle East, where breeds of lamb were raised that had huge tails composed almost completely of fat, which is used in all kinds of cooking. Lard was also most in, the most important fat in China, used for cooking almost everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, the animal fats, I mean, are so high in nutrients. Like all the fat-soluble vitamins that you find, like the vitamin D, uh, vitamin A, it's it's pretty, uh, like, you know, to, to forego all those in, in favor of, like, processed vegetable fats is just, like, mind-boggling why anyone would do that. Not to mention the long-chain omega-3 fats that you find in grass-fed animals. Uh, like it's just it, it, it's so like it's night and day the difference that you uh, you get from uh, like a healthy raised animal versus one that isn't healthy um, or from vegetable fats. Yeah. Although it does remind me of uh, what they say that you know in the past certain tribes regarded organs um, or organs they were very highly regarded. And the meat was uh, given to animals because it was the less nutritious part. <laughs> it was yeah. Mm-hmm. And how yeah. we used to have all these recipes for organs and they just got lost, you know. Like 18th, 19th century cookbooks, you know, organs were highly featured and appreciated. Yeah. No, it was really funny. I remember reading, I think it was at the West uh, May Price Foundation. It might have even actually been in Nourishing Traditions where um, researchers into the traditional diet of a, of a certain tribe were like, oh, well, they didn't value their women very highly because they would give them all the, the crappy organ meat while all the muscle meat was saved for the men. And it's like, no, you have to look at it. Like, that's clearly looking at it from, uh, you know, our own kind of biased perspective. They knew that the childbearing uh part of their tribe needed these nutrients and they mm-hmm. that those those nutrients were those organs were actually highly prized so they were giving it to the to the childbearing age women because they knew that they needed them that 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 was the way that they could propagate their tribe so you know they had this whole uh, like idea that uh, they that you know women were like second class within this tribe but it just it, it wasn't the case they were actually valuing them much more I would love it if a man gave me a gift of pate. Are they crazy? Me <laughs> too. <laughs> <laughs> um, the only thing to watch out, the only thing to watch out with um, with organ meats is um, if the animal's grass-fed and organic, mm-hmm. then um, for instance, the liver. I mean, the liver 
basically um, detoxifies the body. And so if you've got a, you've got an animal that's ill, you know, that's been treated with antibiotics, with, um, you know, been grained, fed, hasn't hasn't um, hasn't been treated um, well, then um, then the organ meats are probably going to be um, a lot more um, dense with toxins. So, for instance, the mm. liver. Um, I'm sure I've read that you you, you should never touch um, liver or the kidneys of an animal that isn't predominantly grass fed. Mm. Um, yeah. So that's mm. something to keep in mind. That makes sense. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah. The, Doug, when you were kind of bringing up the the old the old ways of doing things, so to speak, like the old world ways, that that made me think of something that I wanted to bring up earlier or at least some point during the show um, because uh, I had mentioned the kind of moral argument versus the health argument between eating meat or not eating meat. And um, I don't want to shy away from that. I did want to address that as like a group discussion here for a little bit while we're on the topic. Um, and, you know, I have my own views on it, but I was curious kind of where you guys are coming from too um, <clears throat> and figured that we could just go over that for a minute. So, uh, you know, one of the main things uh, that people argue against eating meat is, um, you know, the cruelty to the animal or, you know, killing the animal. And now on the more extreme kind of end of things that you should never cause any death at all, ever. And so then people, you know, go to like the vegan side of things. Um, there are people that think that like small farming is okay, but factory farms are very cruel. And so they kind of try to limit what they're doing. Um Personally, I, I'm kind of uh, in in the middle there. Like, if, if I can, I would prefer not to kind of give my money to large factory farms that treat their animals very cruelly. Um, but I also don't shy away from the death aspect of this, and I think that's something that's really important to talk about. And I know Lyra Keith talks about it, and Norga Gaudis as well. That um, you know, the world we live in, uh, death is part of the cycle there is life and death and you cannot live without causing death uh, because death enables you to live and then you will die, you know? So it's all part of this, um, this cyclical uh, realm that we live in. And I know that it's, it's uncomfortable for a lot of people to think about, but I think it's worth addressing um, that there is a respectful way to take an animal's life uh, and to respectfully use that animal as sustenance for yourself um, you know, versus doing it very uh, disrespectfully, not thinking about it at all, and being even cruel uh, in that process. Um, so I guess I was just curious what you guys think about that. Well, I think the way I look at it is that what you really want to be doing, or what I personally want to be doing, is, is, is minimizing suffering, but not minimizing death. You know, I think that, that that's a very good point, Jonathan. Like, a, a being cannot live without causing death to a certain extent. I mean, that's kind of the way it works. Like, it's kind of like this pyramidal structure where, you know, nutrients and, and energy and stuff like that is funneled upwards. So, you know, plants uh, eat minerals and, uh, and enzymes and things from the soil, and then animals eat the plants, and then we eat the animals. It's kind of like this, this chain where things are kind of moving up into uh, kind of, you know, high, like to say higher realms kind of. So it's it's like... 
you, you, to try and extricate yourself from that cycle is completely counterproductive. You know, it's like a vegetarian or a vegan um, wants to kind of take themselves out of where they are on that chain and occupy a space lower down. Um, so they want to go just straight to the to the, uh, the the plants and eat the plants as a way of of kind of um, you know minimizing the death that they're causing. Of course, they're still causing the death of plants, and they will kind of gloss over that idea. But um, there's even one branch of of veganism called fruitarianism, where because <laughs> a fruit isn't actually alive in and of itself, and you know it's it, you know some of them will even go so far as to only eat fruit that has fallen off the tree. So they won't actually, you know, because then they're causing the absolute minimum amount of death possible. Um, and, of course, a fruitarian diet is, is ridiculous and it's completely unsustainable. Um, and these people always end up getting sick and lacking things in their, um, like, you know, nu- nutrition that they actually vitally need. So, I mean, it's it's kind of like not liking your position in the universe and trying to occupy a lower space. Like trying to say, like, well, you know, monkeys can get by on, uh, or chimpanzees can get by on just eating, you know, plant vegetation. So I'm going to do the same thing because then I'm causing the least amount of harm. But it just doesn't, it, it just doesn't work that way. You aren't at that level, therefore you can't occupy that level. Yeah, yeah I'm um, pretty much on I the same page. From experience, you know. go on, Joe. No, Elliot, go ahead. That's all I had to say. Oh, I was I was just gonna say, um I yeah, I mean I can completely understand uh why why a lot of vegetarians um don't eat meat because I mean uh I'm 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 twen- I'm twenty one years old now, but um I was I was actually vegetarian for about fifteen years, um, from the age of about four years old until I was um until I was eighteen. And um, I used to have. I mean, what you said makes perfect sense to um, to me because um, it's very difficult when it's almost like um, it's almost like people may have, may have been traumatized at some point in their life. They may have um, internalized this belief that they are an inherently bad person for whatever reason, you know. And um, I think a lot of the time with vegetarians, um, in my experience, because I used to um, I used to know quite a lot of vegetarians, I used to, um, you know, uh, network with them, I used to meet up with vegans, uh, all sorts of things like that. And um, and what I noticed is that a lot of the a lot of the the vegans and the vegetarians, they um, it, it wasn't so much. Um, a nutritional thing. It was. It was more. It was more an emotional thing. It was. Um, it well for me anyway. It was this. It was this belief about myself that um, you know if 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 I if I eat another if I eat a dead animal or essentially how that um, translates is if I cause suffering to to an animal or to another living being, then that um, then that inherently makes me you know. Um, a, a bad person. You know, I am a bad person. I can't eat meat because that will that will mean that I'm a bad person. And I used to um, have this sort of superiority complex and look at people who did meat, eat meat and think, ah, okay, well, you know, these people are. Um, how can you describe it? Um, you know, uh, <laughs> it's, it's very animal. strange. I, I, 
it's, it's, yeah, it's, 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 these guys are animals, you know. It's like I'm better than these people because I'm not, I'm not bad, you know. I don't cause harm to other living beings. You know, it's just a complete fantasy world that you construct. And then I think because you don't have the nutrients in your diet, that your brain doesn't work as well. So, <laughs> so it's, it's like a negative feedback loop, you know. And um, yeah, <clears throat> it, 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 it's extremely, it's extremely difficult for someone to actually break break free of that cycle, you know. Um, it, because because nothing that you can say to that person, or nothing that anyone is going to say, um, can. Uh, can get through to them, you know, because it's it's that emotional um, that barrier. It's it's yeah. I mean, it was it was a very difficult um, thing for me to break through from. Uh, it was it was uh, reading the vegetarian myth that that really um, that really made me see things differently. That you know, we're not um, we're not necessarily. Uh, I wasn't taught in school that you know I'm I'm a human being, therefore I I need to eat animals. I was told that you can you could quite healthily be a vegetarian, and uh, and that was the most healthy way to be. Mm. You know? Yeah, it is a it's it's a hard thing to kind of uh, embrace, and I I've, I've struggled with it myself. I tried vegetarianism for a little while. I I didn't do very well with it. I I felt like crap the entire time, and it was basically more of an experiment for me. But um, I have for a long time have uh, hunted and, and fished. And uh, I struggled with that, too, um, because you're very close up with death, you know. And uh, even just, like, catching a fish and then letting them flop around in the ground until they die, that makes me uncomfortable. And so I, I try to kill them as soon as they come out of the water um, and that kind of thing. So it's, it's, um, <clears throat> it's, it's hard to wrap your head around the fact that the realm, and we're getting a little bit more esoteric here, but the, the realm that we live in, um, is is a cycle of life and death, and to deny that uh, is, I think, somewhat arrogant. But I don't want to like, I don't, you know, I don't want to be super confrontational and call people arrogant. But I think what they're missing is that there is an ethical way to participate in that cycle, um, to minimize suffering, but not to run away from the fact that death exists and that death is what nourishes living beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I just wanted to uh, to go over that a little bit. Um, in fact, it's uh, it's it's been on my mind lately because deer season is coming up here where I live, uh, whitetail deer hunting season, and that is it's always kind of a a, a strange time um, because there's you have these two camps of people. Well, I guess there's more than two camps, but there are essentially two camps of, of hunters, some who are very conscious about that and, like I said, will try to minimize suffering and make a, a kill on an animal uh, as quick as possible, and then others who are like trophy hunters who relish, you know, in the entire experience and kind of rejoice in it. And that that makes me uncomfortable. Like, you know, I don't know if some of them are psychopaths or others are not or if it's just, you know, a polarized kind of state of mind where, Reveling in, in death and suffering is something that, that people do. I think it's a um, kind of a, a psychological dysfunction that's been perpetrated throughout our society. Mm. So it's hard to talk about. It's like we were saying earlier. It's not a black and white issue. It's it's a very complicated issue, and there's not one way or the other way 
to be. Um, I think you just kind of have to walk the line as you go through life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, let's see. Do you guys have any anything else to uh, to add on that topic for the time being? Otherwise, I think we'll... Um, We'll go to the pet health segment here shortly. Yeah, I think we covered it. <laughs> yeah, just that one would be highly remiss to look to the who for their health information. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see if you'll just uh, bear with me for a second. I'm pulling up the the pet health segment in our files. Here we go. So let's um, let's go to Zoya for a little while, and she has a recorded segment here for us, uh, fun facts about pet health. Um, and then when we come back from this, uh, we will wrap up the show, and we'll have a recipe for you today um, from one of my favorite books, which is called Beyond Bacon, uh, Paleo Recipes That Respect the Whole Hog. Um, so we'll do that recipe uh, when we come back. And here's Zoya. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and today I'm going to share with you fascinating facts about various animals. Some of them you may know, and some of them not so much. So enjoy. A chameleon's tongue can be as long as its body. Great white sharks can detect a drop of blood in 25 gallons of water and can even sense tiny amounts of blood from 3 miles away. The blue whale's tongue weights as much as an adult elephant. House flies hum in the key of F. Fleas can jump distances 100 times their body length. A beaver's teeth never stop growing. It needs to chew on tree trunks and branches to keep them from getting too long. Oysters can change gender multiple times during their life. The water boatman can make a 105 decibel noise by rubbing its penis against its belly. The howling monkey is the loudest land animal. Its call can be heard from three miles away. Blue whales are the loudest mammals, producing low-frequency pulses that can be heard from more than 500 miles away. The snapping shrimp is the loudest known living creature. It has specialized claws that shoot jets of water at up to 62 miles per hour and leaving a trail of bubbles that explode at 200 decibels, enough to stun and even kill its prey. Cheetah can go from 0 to 60 miles per hour in 3 seconds. Male emperor penguins will stand without eating for up to 2 months in the uh, Antarctic elements while the female goes to feed. During those 2 months, the mother will travel up to 50 miles each way to hunt and will return to the newly hatched chick with a belly full of food to regurgitate. Seahorses are monogamous and made for life. Seahorses are also the only animal on Earth where the male bears the unborn young. Polar bears have black skin under the white fur to better absorb uh, the rays of the sun. The name jaguar comes from a Native American word meaning he who kills with one leap. Hippos secrete a red oily substance from the skin that acts as a sunblock and a moisturizer. All uh, clownfish are born male 
and will only change sex to become a dominant female. The uh, venomous Portuguese man of war is actually an animal made of uh, made up of four separate organisms known as a siphonophore. The two-inch-long golden poison dart frog has enough venom to kill ten adult men. The electric eel can deliver jolts of electricity up to 600 volts, enough to knock a fully grown horse off its feet. Grizzly bears have been uh, clocked running up to uh, 30 miles per hour. The longest living Galapagos tortoise lived to be 152. Galapagos tortoises sleep for 16 hours a day and can go a year without food or water. Uh, Peregrine falcons dive bomb their prey and can reach dive speeds of up to 200 miles per hour. A desert locust swarm can be 460 square miles in size and can consume 423 million pounds of plants in a single day. The tiger shark is nicknamed the waste basket of the sea and refuse like old license plates and tires has been found in its stomach. The flying snake can glide in the air for distances of up to 330 feet and can even make turns in the air. Scorpions are also incredibly resilient and are able to live on a single insect uh, per year. Scientists have uh, frozen scorpions overnight, and when thawed, the anthropod walked away unscathed. African elephants have the longest pregnancy of any mammal, nearly two years long. An adult panda typically spends uh, 12 hours a day eating and must consume 28 pounds of bamboo daily to fulfill its dietary needs. The largest giant squid on record was 59 feet long, and the creature's eyes are as big as beach balls. Almost all puffer fish contain a toxin called tetrodoxin, uh, which is up to 1,200 times more lethal to humans than cyanide. Despite this, some puffer fish meat called fugu is a delicacy in Japan, where it must be prepared by licensed chefs. Ant eaters eat 35,000 ants a day. Snow leopards can leap up to 50 feet in one jump. The golden eagle can dive at speeds of up to 150 miles per hour and has been known to attack fully grown deer. Vampire bats feed entirely on blood, and a 100 bat colony drinks the blood of 25 cows every year. The saliva of a Commodore dragon harvests more than 50 types of bacteria. Animals bitten by the lizard typically die within 24 hours from blood poisoning, if they aren't eaten first. Baby giraffes can stand, without, uh, can stand within half an hour of birth. Once a giant clam picks a spot to live on a reef, it does not move for the rest of its life. The three-toed uh, sloth sleeps up to 20 hours a day and is so sedentary, algae grows on its back. A wolf can eat up to 20 pounds of meat in one sitting. Goats and sheep have uh, rectangular pupils, which allow them to see nearly uh, 360 degrees around themselves. Ostriches can cover 60 feet 
in a single stride and are capable of reaching speeds of 43 miles per hour. The kick of an ostrich is used as a weapon and is capable of killing a lion, and yes, humans too. Flying fish uh, reach speeds of 37 miles per hour to breach the water and glide up to uh, 655 feet, more than the length of two football fields. The spring pepper lets most of its body freeze during winter hibernation and still thaw out and survive. Technically, only males are peacocks, females are peahens, and choose their mate based on the size, quality, and color of the male's feather tra uh, trains. When tarantulas molt, they can replace internal organs including stomach lining, uh, female genitalia, and even lost limbs. Tarantulas secrete digestive enzymes so they can liquefy their prey and drink up their remains. Male tarantulas also get the hell away from the females after mating because the lady tarantula often will eat the dude. Elephants can smell water from several miles, miles away. At lengths of 40 feet long, the size of a school bus, the whale shark is the largest fish in the sea but feeds on tiny uh, microscopic plankton. Sea cucumbers will split out uh, some of the internal organs via the anus as a defense mechanism. The king cobra has enough venom to kill an elephant. The king cobra is also the largest venomous snake at up to 80, uh, 18 feet long and can rear itself up to 6 feet off the ground, enough to tower over many humans. Dominant male elephant seals um, collect a harem of 40 to 50 females during breeding season. Also, southern elephant seals can reach depths of nearly a mile into the ocean and are able to hold their breath for two hours. Chameleons don't change colors to match their surroundings, but to show emotions and specific reactions. And the last fact is no two tigers have the same, uh, the exact same stripes. Well, I hope that you found the information interesting. This is it for today, and have a good day. <laughs> awesome. Well, if I had so many, there were so many. <laughs> there were so many fun facts there. I don't know what to do with. Said <laughs> <laughs> snow leopards can jump fifty feet. That's a mind blowing one. To long distance. Wow. All right. Well, thank you, Zoya. Really appreciate that. Um, Let's see, we have for the end of our show here today, since we were talking about meat, uh, I got a book out of my kitchen library. That's um, one of my favorite books. It's called Beyond Bacon, Paleo Recipes That Respect the Whole Hog. And it is written by Stacey Toss and Matthew McCary. McCary or McCurry? I think it's McCary. Um, it has a foreword by Joel Salatin, who we mentioned earlier in the show from Polyface Farms. Um, and it's great. There's recipes for literally every part of a pig in this book, uh, all the way from uh, standard kind of bacon and uh, roasts to how to make sausage to how to use uh, the offal, uh, which are awful, depending on how you pronounce it, um, the intestines and organ meats, 
and even the brain and the head, the snout, the eyeballs, all of that. Um, mm. I can't say that I've gone through all these recipes, but I am. Uh, I'm, I would like to kind of get into using uh, offal. Uh, I haven't really experimented very much with it yet. <clears throat> but this uh, this recipe here specifically is called Huntsman Stew, uh, and in honor of uh, Halloween, uh, it is a very bloody red stew um, that is, actually looks kind of creepy when you see the picture of it. Uh, if you do get this book, uh, it's on page 120 of uh, Beyond Bacon. So they say here, this bright red velvety soup reminds us of the fairy tale Snow White when the evil queen requests Snow White's heart from the huntsman and gets a pig's heart instead. Yes, there's a pig's heart in this stew. Don't be frightened. The heart and the tongue are the muscles <laughs> tasting of organ meats because, because they are muscles. And by stewing the heart in this acidic brew, the chewy meat becomes deliciously tenderized. For these reasons, huntsman stew is an excellent introduction to offal. Um, so uh, it has... a uh, difficulty level of intermediate uh, time to table is anywhere from one to two hours and it serves six to eight people. Um, so what you need is for this is a large stock pot and here are the ingredients. Uh, one tablespoon of lard, one pork heart diced into one half inch cubes, four red beets peeled and diced into one half inch cubes, one red onion diced, one carrot diced into one half inch cubes, two cloves of garlic, minced, uh, two tomatoes diced into one-half-inch cubes. Now, for those who might want to avoid nightshades, you can leave the tomatoes out. Uh, one-half cup of dark red wine. And again, for anyone who wants to tweak the recipe and is avoiding yeast, uh, you can cut out the dark red wine here as well. It will still be red um, based on the other elements of the stew. Three cups of pork stock. Uh, which you can make yourself, and there are many recipes for pork stock. Uh, there are some in the book as well as online. Uh, two pork tails or one trotter or meaty soup bones, two teaspoons of fresh thyme, two bay leaves, one teaspoon of salt, and one quarter teaspoon of white pepper. So in a large stock pot, melt the lard over medium heat. Uh, brown the heart pieces on all sides. Remove them to a plate and set them aside. Add the beets, onion, carrot, and garlic to the pot and saute for about eight minutes. Um, then if you're going to use tomatoes, add the tomatoes and bring to a simmer over medium-high heat. Uh, again, here, if you're going to use the red wine, add red wine, pork stock, tails, cooked heart, thyme, bay leaves, salt, white pepper, and bring to a boil. But as soon as it boils, then reduce the heat to medium-low and cover the pot and simmer for 90 minutes or until the meat falls off the tailbones. That is when you uh, can tell that it's done. And then uh, before you serve, just remove the bones and the bay leaves, uh, and then you don't have to pick through it while you're eating. Mm -hmm. So that is that is Huntsman stew, mainly comprised of, uh, of pork heart and uh, pork tails. So there you have it. Sounds good. Sounds very hearty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very much like a fall time kind of winter time stew. Yeah. Mm. And the pork tails is the tail of the pig. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. And so that's it's also partially used for the meat on the tail as well as the uh, the bone, the tail bone itself. So they said you can also substitute if you don't have pork tail, you can use um, you know soup bones for that pork bones. 
Okay. So as we as we're aware from uh we've covered this in past shows, the marrow from uh from fresh bones is very nutritious and bone broth is, is one of the better things that you can make for your health, uh, and it's also really good in the in the fall and the winter. It's a very warming uh concoction. So uh that is our show for the day. Uh thank you very much for listening in. Um and Elliot, thanks for joining us. We hope to have you back soon. Really appreciate having you on. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we'd like to thank people who can, uh, contributed in the chat here, as well as uh, everybody who listened in. Be sure to check out the other two shows from the SOT Radio Network, uh, The Truth Perspective, tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, um, and Behind the Headlines, which is on Sunday, also at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can find that by searching for SOT Radio Network on Blog Talk Radio. Um, and all of our shows are available on the, uh, the same channel on blogtalkradio.com. So thanks again for everybody, uh, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye, Bye guys. Bye. Thank you.